You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. Today is June 11th, 2023, and this is episode 229 of Lighthearted. For me, this episode is really special. I don't have a co-host for this episode because it's something very personal for me. Back in 1997, I recorded an interview with a woman who was a legend in the world of American lighthouses, Connie Small, author of the classic book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife. I've done some editing to that interview, and we're going to listen to it today. Let me tell you a little bit about Connie Small. To do that, I'm going to read some of an article I wrote back in 2003 on the occasion of Connie's 102nd birthday. The world may be a bigger, more complicated place than it was when she was born in 1901, but Constance Scoville Small remains a shining point of reference as steady as a lighthouse. To those who have read her book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife, or have heard one of her 600 lectures, she is the First Lady of Light, a beacon of joy and optimism. Connie was born into a Maine family that included sea captains and lighthouse keepers. It was no wonder she took a shine to Elson Leroy Small, a young man from a similar background. Connie had dreams of being an artist or writer, but when Elson asked, do you love me enough to go with me on a lighthouse? She knew she had to say yes. They were soon married. Elson became first assistant keeper at Lubeck Channel Light, the local lighthouse whose sweet bell tones, Connie wrote, had entered my soul and stayed. Connie thought she could never make the climb up the ladder that led to the deck of the lighthouse. Oh, yes, you can, Elson told her. As she climbed to the deck with her husband behind her, he told her to look up and never look down, words she lived by for the rest of her life. Connie and Elson had a 28-year career at light stations, including Maine's Avery Rock, Seguin Island, and St. Croix Island, also known as Doshes Island, and New Hampshire's Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. Portsmouth Harbor Light Station was their first home with electricity. Through joy and adversity, Connie remained devoted to her husband and to the best traditions of the lighthouse service. Some years after Elson's death in 1960, a woman in a social club said to Connie, How on earth could anyone have any kind of life in a lighthouse? That started Connie on a mission that led to the publication of The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife when she was 85 years old. In 1997, former President George H.W. Bush thanked Connie for her dedication and called her one of his points of light. A gathering of over 300 people helped the American Lighthouse Foundation celebrate her 100th birthday in 2001, and the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses named Connie their honorary chairperson. In her book, Connie remembered the day in 1948 when she and Elson retired from lighthouse life. She wrote that she was saying goodbye to a life of order and duty. Little did she know that many of her greatest contributions lay ahead. Connie continued to inspire with her humble warmth and wisdom for the rest of her life. I recorded the interview you're about to hear in 1997 at the Mark Wentworth home in Portsmouth, where Connie spent her last years. The audio quality is not great, but I think everything is intelligible, and I'm happy to be able to share it. Because of the audio quality, and for the sake of continuity, I re-recorded some of the questions. You'll be able to uh, tell easily which ones those are. Also taking part in the interview is my wife, Charlotte Reskowski, and you'll hear her from time to time in the interview. So it's my pleasure to present this interview with Connie Small. Let's listen to it now. (music) 
Connie, could you say a little bit about what lighthouses mean to you and why you decided to write your book? The lighthouse is very prestigious. It's a very wonderful symbol because it's over 2,000 years old. And it is one of our greatest of all uh, inventions. That light has burned continuously for over 2,300 years. And this is what people don't realize and don't know, you see. Because one little girl said, I didn't know there was a lighthouse that wasn't on a computer. She thought it was just a computer. So you have to get deeper to them to let them know the values of what's behind our life. So that's what just, just what I want to do. I think you have. I'm sure you've, you've reached a lot of people, I think, already with your book and with your the interviews and everything. You think they feel that? Oh, well, yeah. I think people, I, I think your book is uh, inspiring. I think a lot of people, from, I'm sure, have been inspired by it. Read what you went through and your perseverance. And you see, but here's the one thing, though. I don't want it to focus on me. Right. Well, right. I want to just be the spokesman, yeah. you see. You show what a person can do when you uh, That's right. find what's inside. But I want them to take that into their life and live their life with what I have experienced, right. you see. That's the idea. And I hope, and I hope it has. Can you tell me about the first time you went out to Lebec Channel Light uh, after you married Elson? You know, when we were first married, then we were married, I was only 19 years old, and of course when I was 19, it wasn't like the kids 19 today. You didn't know much, and you didn't have much to work with. So here he takes me out to Channel Light, and I was frightened of boats, frightened of the water, frightened especially of heights, you know. And here I am in a boat, bobbing up and down with water rushing this way, and my hand on the rung of a ladder looking up 30 feet with just that ladder to climb to get where I had to go. I just couldn't do it. I said, Elson, I can't do it. He says, oh, yes, you can. He says, you look up and don't look down. I'll be right behind you. I did it. I got up there, and I felt so elated to think I had done something I didn't think I'd ever be able to do, because it was almost traumatic, you see. And I was very happy about that. So, you see, little things like that, he would teach me. He was really my educator. Because from that moment, I thought, now, it isn't me, only just me. But that applies to everybody. You, from your fright, or from your saying you can't do a thing, you can do it. And that's what inspired me to do this language work, to see if I can help somebody, if I can just give to someone else something that would give them a lift or inspiration to do something. That's what I wanted. There's a great story in your book about the time you were at Lubeck Channel Light and you realized the inspector was coming to the lighthouse, so you decided to hide. Can you tell me that story? And we never knew when they was going to have inspection. And of course, the superintendent would be aboard. And I began to think, well, gee, I don't know if I should be here. So I started to hide. I went down, and the only place to hide was in the coal bin. It was all cleaned out, you know. And then I got in there, and I thought, well, they might be landing the coal. 
I better get all the gear because they buried in the coal. And so I went, then I got my bravery and I went upstairs and uh, went home, met with the people. It was all right. <laughs> Everything came out all right. How would you have felt if it was an inspection and there you were hiding? <laughs> they had found me. Yeah. And you know, as I stood there in that coal bin, Here's the water. You see the, the tides in that area rise and fall 28 feet every tide and ebb. And you could hear that swift tide going down over your head. And you stand there and you think, oh, I just hope those seams don't open up. <laughs> that was the main worry I was having. I know you never lived there at that lighthouse, but you were you visited there a few times, right? Oh, yes. I used to stay the two days uh-huh. that he was out there. Uh-huh. So, and he was there two years, so I was there quite a lot, you see. Can you remember what it was like inside the rooms? Oh, it was round. And the, and the main, where you went in, was the, it, it was a combination of kitchen and living room. And you, on the left, was, it was really nice. Cupboards was all circled around on the left. And they had the stores out probably that far from the wall. And then there was a bookcase, a real nice bookcase, and a lot of books in it to read. And then when the next place is where you went up on the second floor. And, of course, the second floor was the bedroom. And that wasn't so cozy as downstairs. It was really a little cozy room down in that first floor. That wasn't so cozy because it was only the bed and a chair and the commode. That's all it was. No rugs on the floor, no curtains to the windows, no touch of a woman's hand to make it, you know, homey. And the wind would whistle around. You couldn't sleep sometimes till you got used to it. You get used to it and you didn't hear it. And if a stick would hit it, it would sound like an avalanche, you know. So you had to get used to all those noises. Mm. And then the top, of course, was the light. And there it was just a hand kerosene light. Everything was done nice and polished to the nth degree. Everything was kept just beautiful. So every, each one had its characteristic. Was there a fog siren at a little bit at that bell. Line when you were there? Or was it still a bell? Was a bell? Mm-hmm. That, uh, was it was foggy pretty often, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. They say manufacture it down there. That's right. <laughs> they make it in the Bay of Fundy. Yeah. yeah. You, and when the tender comes, you salute it first. And then it blows its three whistles in reply. And a lot of people don't know that, you see. Did the bell have a clockwork mechanism? You have to wind the, the bell? No, they just the had a little rope down, a channel light. Mm-hmm. Of course, on Avery Rock and those places, they had a tower, and they had weights that you well wound up. Mm-hmm. And uh, as the weights come down, it started a clock, and this clock timed the stroke of the bell. Mm-hmm. Because we had no electricity, we had no telephone, we had no refrigeration. In fact, we didn't have anything to like that. So everything had to be done by your hand. So you had to wind everything up and, and uh, everything like that. You had to operate by your own physical handwork. You wrote a lot of it in the book about a, one of the, a kitten you had at Avery Rock. I'm trying to remember, there was a kitten your your husband brought it. The mother had died or something. 
Yeah, they were going to they were going to drown the cat and the kittens, and uh, he was coming back from the mail, and he just didn't. He wanted to bring the whole lot, but he, he knew he couldn't do that, so he picked out one and brought it out, and it didn't hardly have his eyes open. And we got it out then. We thought, well, what, how are we going to feed it? You know, because it couldn't even lap or anything. So he got the what is it, the little thing that you eyedropper. He got the little eyedropper, and that's how we fed the cat. And of course, it had to have canned milk, and that wasn't like the milk that she had either. But she got used to it, and then she grew a pretty cat, a lovely cat. But she loved to catch the things and bring up to the house and we had to pat her tell her how nice she was and what a wonderful cat she was and she bring, brought up a skate one day a great big skate I don't know how she dragged it there and of course we had to pat her well we took her to Seguin and when we went on Seguin that place was infested with snakes and she would bring the snakes up just the same she did the the fish for me to pat her and tell her how nice they were. And I can remember, I don't know how many snakes I had to take away from her, scared to death of the things. Because they looked like salt and pepper shakers, you know, as she bit them. And <laughs> <laughs> but I got used to them because they were just the little ladder snakes, you know. But you could go out and pick a five gallon can of those up in no time. <laughs> I don't think there are any there now. No. No, she didn't. No, there isn't any. Yeah, you remember them, maybe, when you're in And there. every year, uh, they they uh, began to disappear. And they think the gulls had a lot to do with it, you see. To adults, too, though. Yeah, <laughs> the adults, too, you know, because the other two families didn't like them any better than we did. <laughs> it, it, was an, it was a common sight growing. See, a couple of three snakes right out your door on the steps, you know. At Avery Rock, uh, there was a time when your husband became very ill. He had a high fever, and uh, you took care of the light. I think it was for 12 days. 15 uh, days 15 I days. went through there. We had, um, of course, we used to call them Nor'easters, and now you call them tornadoes and things like that, you know. But, of course, our, our expression was for the good old Nor'easters. We still call them that. Do, do they now? Storms, yeah. Wonderful. Well, anyway, we had a, a bed in the snow, you know, snow, too. And, of course, when it's like that, the sea is pretty rough, I'll tell you that. It covers barriers all up. And uh, he I, he was sick, and I took his temperature, because I didn't know anything about medicine or how to take care of anyone. And his temperature was 103, but I knew, and I knew he was sick. So he finally collapsed and went into a coma. He was in a coma for three, four days. And the fifth day when I went in that morning and I did everything I could to <clears throat> review his symptoms and I noticed as much as you said the that he was dead because there was no response. He hadn't had a thing to eat or drink for four days. And I had to go up and tend the light. You had to do that regardless of what privately was wrong. That was kind of first. I started up the steps and I leaned my head on the door casing and I said, I've done all I can, Lord, you'll have to help me. And then I went up 
did my work up there, put the light, <coughs> fixed it, and came down. And I know I stood 20 minutes anyway for that door. I knew I had to go in. What was I going to do? No way of letting anyone know that I was in trouble or anything. They couldn't have got to us if they had. So anyway, I opened the door and went in, and he opened his eyes just so barely opened and said, I'm hungry. I could just barely hear him. And I said, oh, well, what would you like to eat? He says, want some cornmeal mush. <laughs> so I said, all right. I went out and cooked the cornmeal mush and fed that to him so he could get strength enough to put his feet over the side of the bed. And that, in the process of that whole time, it took 15 days. So when I spoke out to the Case Western University, to the students there, I said, I wouldn't recommend you giving this to your patients, but I said it worked for mine. And uh, they, they couldn't get over it. But it was a lot, it was, it was 15 days before he could get up to put the light out. I had to do that and the bell, because it was going. Mm -hmm. And besides taking care of him. There was no way that you, were not, you weren't in contact with anybody else. No, else I couldn't. There was no way of doing it. See, I had no, uh, no way of, and nobody came to, well, one time we had a bad storm. They didn't think we had, the Coast Guard didn't think we had survived it. So they came out, but uh, they couldn't land or anything, but they came to see we was all right. But they, this was in March, and it was bad, and that, there was no way that I could signal or anything, you see, because I couldn't see it if I did. I just remembered one, one story about um, this lighthouse, uh, Bird Island Light in uh, Marion, Massachusetts, down in Buzzards Bay. There was a keeper there, I think it was around, around uh, early 1900s. His daughter, he had a small daughter who was very sick and dying. He turned the light. He didn't put the light on one night, so he would get attention, get somebody to come and, and help, and they did. And he, he got a ride with the girl to go to the hospital, and she lived. But he was fired from the lighthouse service. Yeah, wasn't supposed to. Yeah. And. Uh, but he probably felt it was worth it. But. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You would. You, I would do that if it was my husband. That mm -hmm. even whatever it was, I would do everything I could to save him, yeah. regardless. How much boat traffic was there around Avery Rock? Was it pretty busy in the, in the It was it was coming down there. It used to be very very heavy in boat in the vessel traffic, you know. And of course there was a lot of fishermen and and quite a lot of traffic and still vessels going by. Yeah. And uh, I can remember one time it was foggy and I went out I heard a noise and I went out and was looking down the river, and out of the fog, it was a beautiful sight, out of the fog came this vessel on the wrong side of a light and going all full set, sails, every sail on. And Elson looked, and of course, he, he was a mate on ships, and so he knew what trouble was, and he, yet he couldn't get to them because it was so rough, he couldn't get anything, you know. So they went up, and, and they anchored, but the... Uh, the bottom was so sandy it didn't hold, and they here they started back coming down toward the light, and he couldn't do a thing. And I can I bet he wore his shoes out, going back and forth, you know, uneasy because he couldn't make it. Well, the next two days after that, he went out, 
and went aboard, and it was the captain of one of the ships that he used to go on. Isn't that funny? But that was a beautiful, awesome sight, seeing that big ship, uh, vessel coming towards you. Were ever any uh, incidents where people were hurt or, or killed right around there? Or? Not, not with us. Mm-hmm. We picked up a body. He was a, he had a electrical company, and they had that sleet storm, and he went down to see if the tide would come up in his business because it was down on the wharf, and they never saw him afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he was lost in, I think it was October, the last of September. And this was March, and we were up to Bath, and we were going back. And we were going down the river, it was all full, broken ice and everything. And Elson said, that's a body over there. And I said, no, it's a barrel. And <laughs> a shit, a I boat. Wish you were right. <laughs> He said, no. He says, I've been in the sea long enough to know. And we went over, and he tested sure enough. But he'd been frozen in, and he was, you know, it wasn't good condition. He was in good condition. So we we had, I had to take the boat and steer it because you weren't allowed to take him aboard. So he made a rope cradle, and he put him in that, and then we towed him at the lowest point that we could tow. And... Uh, so he had to tend him, so I had to take the boat. And we got down to Indian Island, and he put me ashore there while we went over to contact the authorities. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think it bothered me a bit till I stepped out on the, you know, the walkway to go up to the light, and my knees was going to the light of this. <laughs> so you never, you never know. Yeah. You never know. Uh, Elson got the... Uh the Commissioner's Star at the Pennant for uh, for good uh, for having a good station at Avery Rock and then uh, I think at Seguin also. Well, no, because you see that's given, that's the highest that you can get of awards in that service. And uh, it's, if your light is considered kept the best in, your, in that district, mm-hmm. they award you this. So. Well, when you leave, you see, you have left there, so you have, would have to go and build the other one up, you see, if you wanted to. So we left there. He had it for three years, four years, four years he had that before we left there. And uh, then, of course, when we went to Seguin, why, we only stayed there four years, and there was a lot to do there. Yeah, bigger place. <laughs> Didn't quite make that. That was quite an honor to get that three or four years in a row. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you had a lot to do with that, too. It wasn't just him getting the award. <laughs> well, I don't know. But, uh, we had to work pretty hard, I know. One of the pictures in your book that I really love uh, shows you all dressed up with no place to go at Avery Rock. Can you tell me about that? Of course, that's in the middle of the rock in the middle of Machias Bay. And it was just before Easter, and he had bought me the beautiful blouse, you know, for Easter present. And so I was all dressed up. He had gone ashore. Here I am, all alone. In all of that span, there was no living soul or a living thing moving. And here I'm sitting on the fence, all dressed up, 
no place to go. I even had a hat with a peacock feather in it. And I was feeling a little sorry for myself. But I understand that finding a sea urchin on the rocks made you feel differently about things? That little puddle of water was an urchin. And I reached down, I picked that up, and you know how the water would go through your fingers? And the little animal ran in his little shell? And I held it this way, and I thought, why am I being sorry for myself when I've got the world right in my hand? And from that moment on, I went studying. And I studied history, and I studied nature, and I studied anything that I thought would be something that would be good for posterity. And from that on, I felt that I had a better education than if I had gone on to college, which I couldn't because I had asthma so bad I couldn't go to college. Then I began to bring all of these other things in, you see. And finally, it was just like the ocean roared in on you, you know. So all through my career, that's what I've been doing. A passage in the book that I, I really love, of you described lighting the, the light of Seguin at sunset, being in the tower at sunset. Oh, yes. Can you tell about that, about seeing the other lights come on? The, I used to love to go up with it, you know. After we went to Seguin, I didn't have to do so much uh, with the light like that, because they had two assistants. But I used to go up just the same when he went up to the lighting. And of course you could see from Portland Head to Pemaquid Point, which was quite an area. And uh, it was like the postman taking a vacation. We had go up, and here was one, the minute they took the lens cover off of uh, the light at Seguin. That was the key light. And the minute that came off, and the light went on from Portland Head, down to Pemaquid Point, you see one right after another come right on, 13 of them. And I used to say, hello, hello, hello. You know, they were friends that we used to go And I, I always loved that. Mm-hmm. That was the way it seemed. They were a family. Yeah. Even though you, did you know any of them personally? I do some. Yeah. Some of them we know, yeah. but most of them know. Talked about radio. Was it Avery Rock first? We first had an early, a radio. Or was it <laughs> Avery's Rock. We had. You remember the? What was the first ones they had? They called them. That probably will come to me, but right. it wasn't it like the radios at all. It was <laughs> they built them. And then had earphones, earplug, right? Well, the, the that was really the first one we could hear with the earphones. This was before that. And it, it was, I can't, it'll perhaps come to me. <clears throat> but anyway, um, we there was one station that we could get. And that was very seldom we could get that. We were overjoyed if we could get KDKA, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. And you couldn't very often get that. Yeah. And now that was, but when we went to Sukhwin, it was a little better. That's where the fishermen came, you know, to. One day I went to the door, and he was 25 fishermen from Gloucester. They were the deep sea fishermen. And when it was calm, they'd, they'd uh, moor off of Seguin. And they, one of them said, have you a radio? Yes, we had a little radio like this. 
well, may we come in and listen to the opera today? So here's 25 rugged, uncouth, I call them, men coming in all around everywhere in my house, wherever they could get or listen to that radio. Not one sound. They listened to that so deeply. And I stood in the doorway and looked down at them, and I thought, well, here's a bunch of uncouth men with soul of culture, and I've got to find out what is keeping them so close to this music. And I got to learn to like opera from one of those fishermen. So here's another education finger, you see. <clears throat> so when it was over, they got up very quietly, went out, went aboard the boat. And the next day, the next morning, when I heard the tap and went through the door, here they were with a 65-pound codfish looking me right in the eye. It was as big as I was. I never saw such a big fish. And they had brought that in for a thank you, for letting them come in and give. Now, you see, it doesn't pay to judge people till you know what that is inside of them. So I learned that. Yeah. You yeah. don't find big codfish like that much anymore. No, of course, they, they went out, oh, probably they go up 20 miles to sea, you see, mm-hmm. beyond Seguin. At Seguin, do the keepers fish or, or lobster themselves at all? I mean, oh, yes, also yeah. did. We did because, <clears throat> you see, you couldn't, uh, especially on Avis Rock, mm-hmm. um, our grocery stores were 10 miles away, and perhaps you get there once in 15 days, and perhaps you didn't, mm-hmm. because it was so rough you couldn't get on or off of the place. And uh, so we, Elson had a crate, and he always caught the lobsters, and we had a crate of those so that if we got without food, we had it there, you mm-hmm. see. And, uh, of course, the lobster men, was a lot of them around, the lobster men there. And the smack would come down, and we'd order 100 pounds of sugar, and we had no rope, we love rolls, and so we'd have a great big bag of rolls. And all things like that we had to buy in bulk, mm-hmm. canned milk. And uh, and one day he came back from shore. It was Christmas time. And while he was gone, it you know, this undertow was pretty dangerous and it's pretty tricky. Mm-hmm. And it had, it had uh, developed quite well. It was very strong. So when he came back, he started to put the boat on the slip, and when he did, it took him and the boat over on the rocks upside down, and he was underneath the boat. He was pinned under the boat. Well, here it was, you know, the big waves coming in over. So I had tried to get him up, the boat up, you know, get a thing and lift the boat so he could get out from under the boat and uh, before another wave came you see mm-hmm. and we worked hard and finally we got it on the slip and up on the on the uh, to uh, put the what they call it now 
the rope, you know, that we wound the winch. And uh, so I was winding the winch to, while he was holding it. He had picked up some canned milk. He had a couple cases of canned milk, and that was all floating around everywhere in the in the hundred pounds of sugar. And he, we thought, well, we can save that sugar even though it's wet because perhaps we can use it for pickling. For you know, we used to have to pickle our eggs that we cooked with, and uh, to use it for other things. So. He, he lifted it up when he did all that syrup for him go all over him. I'll never forget it. <laughs> so, and uh, but we got it up and we got the things out and the Christmas packages all floating on top of it. We got those out and it worked out all right. But I'll tell you, we had a struggle to do it, both of us. And he wasn't hurt. So he, the next one, he would have been crushed because he was. He was, the boat held him, so I had to get the boat up enough for him to get out, you see. Mm -hmm. And I took, I think I took the oars to do that, and the next, uh, I, I, know, I know I did, I took an oar, and, and the uh, surf came in, took it out of my hand, we never saw the oar appear. <laughs> but that's what I used to lift, to pry it up. I had to, first thing I could reach, you know, so I took it. And when you were at Seguin, you got a lot more visitors. Oh, yes, come. yes, Seguin was... You had some was, funny stories about, about Yeah, that. yeah. One about the monkey? They oh. never had the monkey? <laughs> that you monkey. Tell us about that? Wasn't that awful. <laughs> he, let, he came... That's, who'd ever think there'd be a monkey on Seguin, anyway? And I'm sitting there enjoying the afternoon. I'd been blueberry, and I had a whole big box full, because I was doing that for our winter's food, you know. When round the corner comes this monkey right down into my blueberries. <laughs> well, the time I got over being amazed at her monkey there, you know, of course he was in the middle, and this man had come around laughing, tickled to death. He thought that was the funniest thing. And and I said something to him about the monkey, and he said, oh, he said, that's all right, you can wash them off. And I said, well, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't even use them after a monkey had been in them, <laughs> which I didn't, I jumped them overboard. And he was very, I never forget that man. It's the one, one time that I didn't appreciate my, the company that came on there. <laughs> so he said, well, I'm going up in the tower. And I said, you're not supposed to because there's people up there now. And I said, you can't take animals up. He said, who's telling me what to do? <laughs> so he grabs the monkey, the monkey and starts up the tower. Halfway up there, and the monkey gets scared, and he got to haul, and you know what the echo would be. So he got away from him, and he went in the first assistant's house, scared the little baby almost to death, you know. And we were so glad when they got out of there. When they get left that island, you know, we just said, Glad to get rid of you. It's like Curious George. <laughs> it's like yeah. a Curious George episode. <laughs> Curious George goes to the White House. Yeah. <laughs> but that's only one. Most of the people are okay. Most of the people were the most wonderful people. And they they not only were wonderful themselves, but they brought to us things that we appreciated and lasted. I don't mean material things. I mean 
uh, things out of their minds and the way that they did things. They, you, if you watched them, you learned how they lived and how they did and how they thought, mm-hmm. and they brought the world to you. So you probably got all kinds of people, well, wealthy people in their yachts. Yeah. And, uh... We had two. We had one. He had a, a two masts a yacht. And every year he'd come out, he had two little boys, and he had, he'd come out and visit us, he and his wife. And the boys always wanted a picture with the caption, you know, so I have pictures of them. And um, I painted a picture of them, painted a picture of the cove with a boat in it. Well, then it laid away all these years, and then finally I thought, oh, wouldn't I like to remember who those people are? Well, I was speaking down to Small Point. Do you remember where Small Point is in from Seguin? It's where um, you go in and go up to Bath, you know, uh-huh. with that part. And I thought, I guess I'll take it along, see if anyone recognizes it. I took the picture along, and there was two children, both 13, 14 years old. That's Grandfather's yard. We are so tickled to see it. And I was so tickled that they recognized it. I forgot to ask them their name, so I still don't know them. <laughs> but they were wonderful children. Um, if we can move on to talk about the Doshe Island. Can you describe what, how you felt it? What, what the difference when you first moved there? How, how it was different from where you had been before? When I first went there, I don't know. There was times that I just had to write things, and I wished I'd saved a lot of them, but. I wrote how I felt when I went to, to uh, Dilshe's Island. And it was on a Sunday morning, and I went over to the window in the dining room, looked across the river to the church at Red Beach. And the bell was ringing, and I could see the people going into the church, and I could feel the organ playing and going the, into the hearts of the people and into the church, you know, I was going all through this. And uh, I, I was feeling lonely because I knew nobody, everything was strange, and all I had, of course, was, was my husband, which was wonderful. He was down in the cove fixing the boats, and both the time that I, you know, felt, oh dear, I would love to be there, it felt lonely and like that. When he opened the door and he said, I had to saw the, the end out of the, the dinghy because he says it's all rotten and I had to board it up. He says it's an awful looking dinghy but we'll have to use it this fall till I can buy a new one. And he, so then he looked at me and I guess he saw that I was kind of lonely but he said put your things on and come down for the, and so I went down to the shore with him. Well, of course, the cat and the cow had to go, too. Now, here's a little thing, too. That cow never saw another one of her kind. The cat never saw one of his kind. So we became their parents, and they acted like our children. This is funny, but it's true. So here they go along with us like little children, you know. And I got down there, and I helped him with the boat, and... It was a windy day, and the breeze would come down over the bank, and in beautiful calm down in the, on the beach. And I write about this and how 
it affected me and what was. And finally, it got so cold and the sun went in. Nelson said, let's go up the house. So gathered up the tools and we ran up over the bank with our two little children behind us, you know. And he said, I'll race you to the gate. Well, of course, I knew it would be lost, but we that's what we do. We'd have a race. I got back, and I went in the house, and the first thing I did was go over to the window and look across. And, of course, there was no response. The door was closed. Nobody was there. And it was just like a passing picture that had come and gone to me. And uh, by that time, of course, I, I won't go into that, cause it, but I, I will say, Elson put his arms around me, and, and we will, you know, that's when we opened the life on Joseph's Island. That's what it meant to me. It shows you how I felt I was just like a little flower picked up from one place and transplanted into another. That's the way I expressed it. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I felt. And until it took root, I wasn't sure whether I was here or there. It sounds like Doshe Island is a nice nice place for a flower to grow. Wonderful. I had beautiful gardens. Uh -huh. We had a beautiful garden. Yeah. And uh, we had a vegetable garden, which we never had. You can't imagine how wonderful it was. Mm -hmm. Go out and plant your own garden. But how about the morning we woke up? See, we had to put a fence around it and have a very low electrical thing to keep the cow out of it, see, because it's downwind in her pasture. And then we had all these nice vegetables, little leaves, you know, very tempting to her. And Elson got up and looked out, and there wasn't one sign of anything in that garden. All of the beets, the carrots, the, the greens, everything, gone. He says the cows had a revenge. <laughs> so we got up. But when we opened the door to go out, that door was as covered with black, and the whole house was just as black as could be with grasshoppers. I suppose they were more locusts than black grasshoppers, locusts, because they were black. They had been there and they ate everything but the strings in the leaves of the greens. That's all that laid on the ground. And we had a big garden. They came the next year. They were not as, there wasn't as, as great a number. And every year they diminished until there was none. Mm -hmm. um, can you just tell a little bit about the Christmas tree they cut uh, for the White House? That was quite an event. Uh, so, uh, that island is supposed to be the first place where Christmas was celebrated in North yes, America. Yes, the first Christmas in North America was, uh, was uh, celebrated on that island. Mm -hmm. And it was when, you see, after Pearl Harbor, when uh, Churchill was entertaining, I mean, when Roosevelt was entertaining Churchill, and uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Callis, Maine, and the Publicity Bureau of Augusta, Maine, they came down to do something historical. And uh, so they came out to cut the tree on the island that was the first Christmas tree. And they did, they cut the tree. And I can remember 
Mr. Doucette, who was the publicity bureau man, they, they cut it and it started to fall. And he wasn't ready for his <laughs> movie camera, you know, so he push it back up, push it back up. And they pushed it back up so that it could fall and he could take the pictures of it. And we always kidded, you know, after that, you know, push it back up. But uh, Elson got that ready and took it to Callis, and that was what was in the White House for that Christmas. It was inside, not outside, inside. Mm -hmm. It was 18 feet high. There weren't many trees on the island, right? No, and I could have cried for that because if it hadn't been for that historic event, you see, I think I'd set a little opposition to it, but uh, that was for a wonderful cause, and so I was perfectly willing to see it go. But it was had been a pretty tree, but it was dying, and so that's the reason they cut it down. You talked about uh, shooting target practice and, and shooting icicles. I thought that was funny. <laughs> shooting icicles for target practice in the winter. Yeah, that's what that was. See, we couldn't do anything else so we could down and we'd shoot icicles off for practice, you know. We'd, shot, we'd go on shore and uh, the rod and gun clubs and shoot under competition, you know. It was, it was kind of... You could probably walk ashore in the winter, right? Could you? Uh, in in Dosis Island? Two. We sure did. One window, it was 27 below zero for much as two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I took my best wool blanket and wrapped the cow up for fear she'd freeze. I remember that, mm -hmm. bless her heart. And I think she appreciated it. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, now that is part fresh water and part salt water, and every ebb and flow of tide, that is moving up and down 25 feet. And that ice, we measured it on some of it, and it was 24 to almost 30 feet thick as it froze in there. And when it broke, it was like fudge, I said, coming down, piling up on top. So Elson went, we, we needed some food. We were getting out of food. And uh, so he came up, to, he went down and he chopped down in the ice about 18 inches and he didn't see any water or anything. So he came up and he says, put your coat on, we're going to walk ashore. <laughs> So we did, and I, we took uh, snowshoes to put on our backs, and, and we started across. We got across fine, snowshoed up through the woods, and got our mail. And I had uh, ordered some hunting boots, leather, you know, the leather hunting boots. And I sat down the middle of St. Croix River and changed them, and I never got wet a bit. But, it's all in St. Paul because a very strong tide there, very strong. And uh, we didn't do it again because we didn't dare to. Because when that broke, you see, it was it would have been dangerous. We're starting to talk about the time the cow ate the pie, blueberry <laughs> pie. <laughs> well, we it was a beautiful sunny day, and we had invited Doctor Mrs. Bunker and. Mr. and Mrs. Pat Brinkerhoff. He was a syndicated cartoonist of Little Mary Mix-Up. I don't know, you wouldn't remember that because they back. And <clears throat> Pat said he'd love to have a blueberry pie. So when we invited them that day, I had blueberry pie for dessert. It was so beautiful that we took our things and went down 
and that by the boathouse and had our dinner. It was lovely. So we had our regular dinner, and then we, I went to get my pie. Somebody had left the gate open, and here was my cow with a pie, with her nose right in the middle of my pie. And she put her head up this way, and the blueberry juice coming down, and those big brown eyes saying, oh, it's very delicious, you know. And I looked at her, oh dear, I'm going to dessert. But Bob jumped right up and he drew it and put it in his cartoon. <laughs> so when I apologized about not having any dessert, he said, I love to have that blueberry pie, but he said, this was worth a great deal more to think a cow would eat a blueberry pie. And she loved it. Was it in, in newspapers, his cartoon? Oh, he was a, in the national, he was a, you know, a syndicated uh -huh. cartoonist. So the cartoon of the cow eating the pie was in the yeah. newspapers? Yes, it was. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't have a copy of that, do you? No, I don't. And I, he, he sent me a copy. And I, it's one of the things that I can't find. It's got, you know, you lose a lot of things. Because so many people didn't think it was worth, worth anything. anything. And I did, but they didn't. So I've had to move so many times that... Be a great thing to find. Yeah, I don't find a lot of things that I'd like to have to leave to people, you know, the museums and things that you'd sure. like to have them now. You wrote a lot about your cat, uh, Scotty, the big black cat, right? He was great. Great. And he loved his clams. And he'd dig down, you know, of course, down there, we could go down and dig clams bucket of time around there. It was right, wonderful. And he'd go down, and they were that long, you see. He'd dig down, but he couldn't pull them out. And he'd look up at me and he'd say, well, you got to pull them out for me. So anyway, I'd take them out, but he loved them. I didn't know cats would eat. Could he open the clams by himself? Or no, you no, open well, no, he couldn't think to do that. I whether, whether I didn't let him do it, probably, but I opened them for him. And, and he ate them out of the shell? Yeah, he'd eat them right raw, right out of the shell. <laughs> and he loved them. Huh. And he was a wonderful cat. He was a, uh, well, as I say, he, I was his mother, and he took care of me. Another thing I did with him that I didn't think of at the time, I had a canary. And it, they, we had one similar to this, only it was long and had a, had a shelf in it, you know, quite long. And up here I had plants, you know, you've seen the plant thing. So underneath, I made a nice uh, mattress and thing. That was his bed. When he got big, he weighed 15 pounds, so he was quite a big kid. And that's why he used to lay. And here's the bird right up here. And I never thought anything about it. And people said, uh, years afterwards, said, you let that cat be underneath of that bird? And he never touched it. He, he acted as though he had to take care of that bird. I never had any trouble with it, but, but I, and I never once thought about, well, that's natural for a cat to, right. to do, you know. Your brother would visit sometimes at, at Doshe Island, right? So My brother did. Your brother, Gerald? Mm-hmm. And they built a windmill? Yes. Now that windmill, to look at it, it didn't look like anything it looked this or another. And of course, he got tired. We, of course, had to always have everything done by battery. So he and Joe got together and they came up with this 
uh, windmill. One day, it was a beautiful day, and this yacht went up by and turned quickly and came back and came in the cove. And this man came right up and he said, who made that? Nelson said, we did. That was my brother and I, my brother-in-law. He says, you get that patented right today. Well, then, of course, he went again. And we, we found, when he wrote to us after he got back, we found that he was the president of the White Engineering Corporation and of RCA in New York. And he said to Elson, he said, you have discovered something that we've been trying to find out for years and haven't succeeded. Now, what it was, it, you, you'd think, you look at it, you'd think it was nothing. In the propeller, he had found the particular thing that they could let that go in the wind and not burn out the, the generator. Whatever angle it was that they had was the right one. Mm -hmm. Of course, Elson didn't do it, and a couple of years later, they came out on the market, you see. Now, when you moved to Portsmouth Harbor, Light. That was the first time you had real electricity. Wasn't that funny? You know, we always look forward to electricity, of course, and the first electricity was when we came to Portsmouth Harbor. And, of course, he said, well, we'll go up and light the light. So we went up, and finally he said, press the button, and I pressed the <laughs> button, and I no no more feeling than I've got about it right now. And I thought, what has happened? What is the reason? So I went down to the kitchen, sat down, began to think about it. What in the world? Why wasn't I? When we looked forward to it as a big thing, then I realized we had to give 20 minutes of ourselves to light that light. And we had put part of us into it. And that made it something. But just to press a button, that was nothing. <laughs> you see what I mean? But when I went back and went in the house and saw what I could do, we went on an electric binge and <laughs> bought everything we could electric. Yeah, the <laughs> Oh dear, I'll never forget that. We, had, we got a radio and a electrician, a washing machine, everything toaster. We take for granted. Yeah, exactly. And, and I had that toaster until I moved here. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1920, 1946, and I, and I was, it was just as good when I came here as it was that day I bought it. Worked just as good. Now, one of your, one of your jobs at Portsmouth Flight was flying the weather signals, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I tended to like those, and I um, used to tend the telephone. I, that was my two jobs there. Of course, I had to put the signals up, you see, and those flags, those flags are eight feet wrong, those, you know, the square, the ones that you put up for the hurricanes and everything. And the pendants, of course, are that long, but they're this way. But of course, when it rained, Elson wouldn't let me touch them because they were so heavy, he didn't want me to touch them there. Well, sometimes we would just fly them once when they wouldn't be acceptable to the plane. And so, and I couldn't see all that good material go to waste, you know, throw overboard. So I cut out all that was good and made quilts out of them. And I made a quilt for everyone in my family <laughs> out of those flags. And they lasted long, long while. It was real pretty, red and white. Did you make drawings of the designs or? Yeah. Yeah, you did? Yeah. Oh, neat. Yeah. 
Oh, well, we did everything by hand. I know you did. I read about your sewing machine you had too, and it was one of those treadle jobs with no electricity. Right. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, when you were at Portsmouth, sometimes you uh, you substitute substituted for the uh, nubble, the keepers of the nubble, mm -hmm. right? We did. Yeah. And I thought it was funny you wrote about how you liked it there, but you felt it was, it was like a goldfish with people watching you all the time. Right. We used to like to have a lunch out on the porch, mm -hmm. and they'd put those big spy glasses on. Of course, they yeah. weren't. They probably weren't watching us. They probably were watching well, I think maybe they were watching you. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, it was, I just, that's what I felt like. I felt just like some, uh, how a goldfish must feel in a goldfish bowl, you know. What was it about living at, at lighthouses that was the major life specialty? I think my life, for the, the lighthouse being my life, because I feel I got my education there. Mm -hmm. And uh, simply because of the little question. And Elson saying, oh, yes, you can. Those were the two things that that uh, made it, that uh, modeled my life. What is it about lighthouses? What is, what is so special about lighthouses? Well, I'll tell you, and this is what I tell the children to try to bring a little thought into their minds. The lighthouse isn't a lighthouse to me. When I ask them if they what they see when they go to see a lighthouse, they'll say buildings, and of course, the tower and the light, you know. And I'll say, I don't see that, and they'll look at me, you know. And I'll say, you know, the minute that light is, comes on, I said, it's a spiritual symbol to me, saying, see how many lives I have saved. See how much property I have saved. And if you obey my signal, you'll be saved. If you disobey, you'll be lost. That's what the lighthouse means to me. I could, of course I could... Uh... We could sit for days, but... No, we can't. <laughs> oh, no, we can't. He's got to get out of his room sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Connie Small's book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife, is available in a new edition that was co-published by Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses with the University of Maine Press. You can buy it through the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses website at portsmouthharborlighthouse.org. That's P-O-R-T-S-M-O-U-T-H-H-A-R-B-O-R, lighthouse.org, PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. Connie Small passed away in 2005 at the age of 103. I consider knowing Connie in her last years to be one of the top highlights of my 40 years in the world of lighthouses. She was a very special person. We'll be back with a new episode of Lighthearted next week. Until then, thanks so much for listening and... Keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All in my house, I'm gonna let it shine.